0: Jimmy, I need you to be on your best behavior today. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you have a bad habit of getting into conflicts with our guests. The specially selected tourists that we bring on the show. These are the biggest gets we've had in the history of the show. And I don't need you to screw it up today. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't be playing that card with me, buddy. You heard me. Now, as I was saying, whoa, what? What the the, the? the frick? What is? What's going on? What the? Oh Oh, Jimmy? Do I want to know what that was? Mm-hmm. Serpentera Mark One. That thing's still around. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Uh, what is it doing here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is true. The board did invite the winner of Kaiju Weekly's latest Kaiju Clash over to the island for dinner. And the loser is just going to Zoom call in despite also getting an invitation? Of course. Well, anyway, let's just stay out of their way and put on a good show. Live from the K.I.J.U. studios in beautiful Ogasawara. this is The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 37, Godzilla, King of the Monsters 2019, featuring the Omniviewer and Up from the Depths. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment. Through Tokusatsu, I am your host, the curator of The Film Fault here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. But joining me today in a very special episode in the road to Godzilla vs. Kong is two well-known YouTubers. You know them, you love them. On my left here, I have Ryan the Omniviewer Collins with his little sidekick snazzy hanging out with Jimmy in the producer booth.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am the Omniviewer, YouTube personality and author. And excuse me, sidekick? Yes, sidekick.
0: Jimmy's my sidekick, so why not? Oh, calm down, man. You get to hang out with, what are you?
1: That we're still trying to figure out. Yeah, I just sort of showed up one day. I don't know where I came from. And I don't know what this button does either. Tell me, what happens if I push it? Oh, come on. Stop poking Jet. Maybe I'll do it again. You seem to like it.
0: No, uh, Jimmy says no. (laughs) You might turn Jet off. (laughs) Well, I make no promises. Okay, that's totally fine. Totally fine there are points where we've had a very crowded (laughs) producer booth you're not the first one to start hanging out in there with jimmy (laughs) what we'll Mm. we'll call it like sidekick central at this point oh calm down jimmy i saw your finger going for that button that's enough already we got to introduce our next guest the host of the up from the depths youtube channel brandon jacobs
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> yes, those soothing dulcet tones. That
2: <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, did you say that uh, you have a Jet Jaguar hanging back there?
0: A little bit, yes. Jet comes in sometimes during the recordings because he's our dump button. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, he might be happy to know that I'm actually wearing oh, a Jet Jaguar. Oh, he's got the shirt. So I'm representing our one true hero, Jet Jaguar.
0: <laughs> Uh, My Jet Jaguar speak is still a little rusty, but I think he's happy about that. (laughs) He's still going through that weird retro steampunk phase, though, with Singular Point coming out. All the tourists here on the island have been photographing him and memeing him something fierce, and I don't think he realizes quite what's going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, out of curiosity, how did you guys get to the island today?
2: Well, actually, I've been taking a break from my extensive studying of Godzilla himself. I don't know. Does he hang out on the island? Here oh, yes. He's one of the biggest attractions here. <laughs> naturally i'm one of his biggest fans so obviously I, I spent all my time uh, researching him and understanding as much as i can and the wonderful folks from monarch just came and picked me up and dropped me off on your island uh, so i can spend some time talking to you guys here
0: ah excellent excellent we do have a monarch outpost here it is a uh, outpost 83 so they, they keep an eye on everything here and Not all the scientists here on the island are with Monarch, but Monarch is definitely spearheading all of the research that is going on here Mm -hmm. while everybody else is having fun on the Monsterland resorts. So
1: there you go. How about you, Ryan? You and Snazzy. Well, we happen to know a steam-powered adventurer, Sir Adam Lexington. He was taking us (laughs) out for a ride over the island on his airship. Then Rodan poked the air sack and wound up going down. Luckily, it was near one of the facilities, so we weren't in too much trouble. Wow. Yeah, but the only problem is we've been staying in the Dougal Dixon suite. The things outside that room, they are freaky.
0: Oh, yes. I've heard stories. A lot of them. Mm. (laughs) After man, indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But as I hinted at at the beginning here, we are perilously close, gentlemen, to Finally having Godzilla vs. Kong, the movie we weren't sure existed (laughs) for months, (laughs) and its constant rescheduling has only mucked up my podcast schedule about five times, but it seems like they have stuck to a release date and it's staying, and we're having a special premiere for it here on the island, which is there's been drama involved with that as well, trust me. Hmm. yes calm down jimmy we, we're not going to go into it <laughs> we've dealt with that enough so in the lead up to this i thought it was only appropriate that we talk about the monster verse film that immediately preceded this godzilla king of the monsters from 2019 i thought snazzy was going to say something there because he was poking up
1: yeah i'm just looking for more buttons to push Ooh, this <laughs> one looks important camera.
0: no turn that off that we're not talking about camera today but that was the oldie station. We have an oldie station here? <laughs> it must be uh, it must be an online station.
1: <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> now, the reason I invited you guys on here, which, by the way, it is an honor to have both of you on here because you guys run two very popular YouTube channels here in the fandom. And I'm just ecstatic that Jimmy and I were able to get both of you at the same time on this show. All three? All three, yes. Sorry, Snazzy. <laughs> <laughs> So I can't begin to tell you how pumped I am because I'm a big fan of both of your contents. And the other reason I wanted to have you on here is it's become strangely popular to hate on King of the Monsters. And both of you guys have been very positive toward the film. And I wanted to have you on to spread some more of that positivity here. I want us to be honest for sure because this isn't a perfect movie. We were talking a little before we went on the air about that. But I don't think enough people talk about the good parts of this movie and I think honestly have gotten to the point where they tend to underestimate it a little bit.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that mindset sort of floating around the movie critiquing in general, but especially among Kaiju fans recently where it seems like people seem to think you can either have substance and theme and deeper meaning or you can have spectacle And it seems like people are getting it in their heads that there's no crossover. So, I mean, like, I don't want to get off track, but that's one of the main things that people have tried countering me with when I say I don't like the Polygon anime trilogy. They say you just don't like it because it's slower and less action packed when that's not the case. I won't get into a rant, but (laughs) I do think that there is that that's kind of a mistake to think that you just have to be slow and not action-packed or anything, and have no spectacle in order to have the theme. Sometimes theme can enhance the spectacle, or spectacle can enhance the theme, and, well, I mean, that's just what I see anyway.
0: Yeah, so just to kind of start things off in this conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your... It's not very long, obviously, but your kind of your personal histories with King of the Monsters, because I know, Brandon, reviewing some of your YouTube videos, I know you have, in particular, you've kind of gone through a little bit of, of a process with this movie. Your thoughts on it have evolved over time. So can you share a little bit about that with us?
2: Yeah, the first time I saw the movie, I, to be honest, I was kind of underwhelmed. And part of that I feel is that the movie is so fast paced that, I don't know, I'd built the movie up so much in my head that when it would get to a moment that I expected, it didn't really go about the way I had envisioned. So there's this kind of feeling of like, oh, that's it. So when I came out of it, I was kind of feeling like it was like an okay movie, but I saw, I think, two more times in theaters. No, three. And each time I watched it, I started to appreciate it more. I noticed more things about the narrative and the kind of underlying themes going on. I appreciated the spectacle more. I was able to kind of relish in the big moments more and the characters also, I started to appreciate them more. And I just, the movie grew on me over time the more I watched it.
1: That sounds about right. How about you, Ryan? I mean, I was looking forward to it for a long time because, I mean, I really enjoy Godzilla 2014, which I was initially very nervous about. You can see that building up to that movie, I was of the feeling that the only other American Godzilla movie we ever got was in 1998, and we know how that went. <laughs> and yeah, but it's nice to see that Zilla's at least allowed on the island, sort of. Yes. But anyway. Yes. That wound up being really good. I thought it was kind of funny. I was one of the only people who said, guys, I think this movie's not gonna have much Godzilla in it. And everyone else was going, No, no, you're wrong. They're just holding back. Well, <laughs> then it happened. But yeah. I thought it was well executed. Kong Skull Island was a loads of fun. And of course, I was also initially kind of skeptical about that one because why did we need another King Kong movie until it was announced it would be crossing over? And then it turned out to be great as well. And with King of the Monsters, of course, you had five years of buildup, knowing that there was going to be another movie. They were going to bring in three other Toho monsters, because that was announced pretty early on that that was the plan. And you spend so much time covering the news and looking at the other stuff that's going on on Toho's side of things. And I actually think it's kind of weird to admit, but the... In my original review of King of the Monsters, where I do the opening, of sitting in my car, very nervous about what to expect. Yes. <laughs> that wasn't really an act. I was genuinely kind of nervous about how it would turn out because this was a big deal. And I pretty much liked it right away. And I've been basically one of its apologists, if you will, ever since.
0: <laughs> do you like being the apologist for this movie? <laughs>
1: Hey, C.S. Lewis made a good career out of being an apologist for something else.
0: Oh, except he was an apologist for God. You're the apologist for Godzilla. See, yeah, I, I see. That's just like one of the silly jokes in this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Okay.
2: I think that's another aspect of it is that this is done to be the first big Hollywood-produced Godzilla movie with King Ghidorah, Mothra, and Rodan, like the trifecta. Toho, uh, the Toho Trinity. Yeah, the Holy Trinity of Godzilla's kaiju roster and five years of buildup. It's just like, this is going to be like the greatest movie of all time. And <laughs> if you have that kind of expectation going in, even if the movie is good, which I've experienced in my life, even if the movie is good, you kind of are let down in a way because there's so much buildup in your head. How can we yes. possibly live up to that?
0: Yes. And I think that is part of what contributed to... It was a two-edged sword because when the movie initially came out, it seemed very divisive with the fan base. People either praised it to high heaven or they hated on it. And I wonder if those years of anticipation contributed to that so that people either very disappointed or they were just exuberant with what they
1: got. It's not the only Godzilla movie you can say that about that's come out recently. (laughs) You can also say it about all the others that have come out pretty much Starting with 2014.
0: Actually, I would argue that there hasn't been a Godzilla movie that has, if not universally made the fandom happy, made most of it happy, probably for about, uh, I'm going to, I have to up my numbers now because time has passed. Uh, I'm going to say close to about 20 years. I think the last one that really made people happy was probably GMK. The Kiryu movies had their detractors who were pretty outspoken, but for the most part, people liked it. Final Wars was divisive. And then 2014 was divisive. Shin Godzilla was divisive. King of the Monsters was divisive. It's just, I don't get it. It's not Star Wars levels of bad at this point with the fan base, but it's inched a little too close to it for my own personal taste. (laughs)
1: We're at least keeping it focused on talking about the quality of the movies and not all the other stuff that is only tangentially related.
0: For the most part, I've seen people go off into the weeds with that when it comes to Shin, but that is a whole other animal. (laughs) That is a whole, whole other animal. It's not what we're here to talk about. So I was also one of those people who loved the movie pretty much immediately after I saw it. And one of the things that dawned on me, because I actually had the privilege of being on a G-Fest panel discussing the movie with a couple of the guys from Dangerville, and I forget who else was on that, but it was like the two big guys from Dangerville. And one of the things I said in that panel, and I stick to it, is that the greatest strength and weakness of this movie is that it's a big-budget Hollywood production for fans like us. Which is great if you're a fan, but the impression I'm getting, and maybe you guys can vouch for this or tell me I'm wrong, I don't know. But I think because it's not a fan letter, but such a love letter to the fans, that it's a little inaccessible to the non-fan, perhaps?
2: Yeah, to be honest, that thought crossed my mind the first time I watched it because I was on vacation with my family, and I was like, I'm going to pay for all your tickets, and we're going to see this in IMAX. And oh wow! It's gonna be yeah, it's gonna be great. And as I was watching it, all of them except for maybe my brother pretty much know nothing about Godzilla. Other than that, he's a big giant dinosaur that shoots fire. And throughout the movie, especially when a certain weapon is name dropped, oh no, uh, out of nowhere. Oh, uh, we'll get um, to that. I was. Like, I have thoughts. Are they gonna understand that? <laughs> uh, 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 so I that thought did cross my mind. I was like they might be lost. I hope they're not. I hope they're enjoying it. So yeah, that is something to think about.
1: In my own experience, I also did a thing where I bought a bunch of tickets for a bunch of people to go see it on a preview night, not in IMAX because there are no IMAX theaters near me, unfortunately. But interestingly, like the only people who saw it and didn't like it, who weren't all that familiar with Godzilla were people who weren't really sci-fi fans to begin with. Mm. There's one particular person who came along. I was starting to forge a friendship with him through church. It's still forging, but it's been kind of put on hold as of late because of greater global circumstances. He had no introduction to Godzilla at all, and he knew I was a huge Godzilla fan, so he checked out the 2014 film and really liked it, and knew that I was really looking forward to this, so he joined in and he really liked the film. And he had no prior experience. He didn't know anything about the Oxygen Destroyer or Mothra or Ghidorah or the Anguirus skeleton that you can just barely see (laughs) in the Hollow Earth or anything. And he was like, yeah, this is great. I'm enjoying it. I want to know more. And it's kind of served as a bit of a gateway, if you will, to getting him into the series as a whole. He's since seen the original Godzilla. He's seen the original Rodan. He's checked out a couple of the older Gamera movies because they're on Amazon. I think, as with most things, to say it's all one way or the other is a generalization. There's going to be instances where people who aren't fans will see it and not get it, or people who aren't fans will see it and want to know more.
0: Yeah, I know there's been a lot of talk, and I've participated in this as well. I know you have, Ryan, talking about why it underperformed at the box office. I know that was a big thing. I know another big thing was the whole Rotten Tomatoes score, which I did check before we went on the air, and it's remained pretty much unchanged after the first couple of months after the movie came out, which is, I think it's about like 42% for critics, but it's 83 for the audience score. So it's a yet another example of the huge disparity that happens between critics and audiences, and mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of films that have turned out that way. Uh, sometimes it's reversed. You know, the critics love it, but the audience hates it. So we could probably spend a whole podcast episode talking about the Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> score, which I know was a controversy, and then analyzing why the film underperformed. And I think there was a multitude of factors for it. Things like, I think they showed too much in the uh, in the promotion. The It probably wasn't quite long enough after Endgame, because <laughs> Endgame sucked the air out of every room it was in, understandably so. But there was a lot of stuff going on at that point. Mm. But... What I wanted to focus on on our initial part of the conversation is, you know, go really quick, because there's a couple of topics that I want to hit with that, because that's what we do here on the Monster Island Film Vault. We're a film appreciation podcast. But what are a couple of things from each one of you that you really liked or didn't like about the
2: film? Well, one thing I've grown to appreciate over time is the whole institution of monarch in the film. I really like the idea of a movie that focuses on this technologically superior scientific organization that goes around the world and studies monsters and deals with their impact in the world. And the whole movie is them racing against time to save the world from this like crazy situation that's going on. And it's just a very like proactive movie. Characters mm-hmm. are solving problems all the time, uh, which is one of the underlying themes of the Godzilla franchise is the power of science to solve problems. And so that's one element of the movie that I really, really enjoy a lot. Just want to say, if
1: uh, most procryptozoologists wish they had those kind of resources, right? <laughs> We'd have found Bigfoot years ago. But um, Bigfoot let's might see. be here on
0: the island. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, kind of is. We do have the Snowman from Half Human. So,
1: oh <laughs> uh, yeah, thought I saw him lurking around somewhere.
0: Yeah, him and uh, anyway, him uh, and
1: his kids. So. <laughs> so I think what I really appreciate is the fact that the monsters are characters, and just like in the really good classic films, you can tell what they're thinking and feeling and planning to do just by watching them. Even going so far as to give each of Ghidorah's heads a different personality. Oh. Yeah, even though that's only really significant in a couple of scenes, because most of the time they're acting as one force, that's still a nice little detail, like having the middle head be the one in charge, the right head be the really aggressive one. And the left head, Kevin being just <laughs> Kevin. sort of the more derby looking one.
0: <laughs> oh, and, uh, I miss the Kevin memes. That all got started because Dougherty tweeted out that someone asked him, did you name each of the heads for Ghidorah while you were making the movie? And he said, yes, Ichi, knee and Kevin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nee, son,
1: AKA Kevin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it became. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it even goes beyond Ghidorah's heads. Like that whole scene where Rodan is chasing after the Argo and as he's flying around and the jets are trying to get him, you can tell every time it cuts back to him that he's figuring out what he's going to do next. Like that look before he does the barrel roll. He just gets this look at like, they're not going to see this coming. <laughs> Whoosh. And then <laughs> he the takes barrel! them all out. Or like. Mothra's lights when she's a larva or as an adult how those read as expressions or when Ghidorah goes for that one power generator in Boston and Godzilla gets this look on his face like what's he doing oh crud and then the lightning show which is a cool shot Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love
0: that. And I think that's actually one of the things that helps to distinguish. I wanted to say kaiju, but I don't know if that's exactly what, I, the word I'm looking for, but what distinguishes Japanese giant monsters from, well, mostly you know, everybody else is that they give the creatures personality, at least in the older American films, the monsters tend to be more animalistic. They tend to be reacting more in terms of instinct. Whereas Japanese kaiju have some form of personality even if it isn't the most prominent of mm-hmm. personalities. Godzilla in 1954 has a personality, but it's a subtle personality, mm-hmm. especially when you compare him say to his immediate predecessor, the Rodosaurus from Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It's a remarkable movie and a remarkable creature, and he's also here on the island. He's a little bit of a draw, but he doesn't have the personality that Godzilla does. Now, on the other hand, you do have something like Kong, and Kong very much has a personality, but I think Mm. that is more because American filmmakers, even back in the 30s, tended to anthropomorphize apes and monkeys more than they would, say, a lizard, (laughs) so
1: there are other exceptions though like you can sort of see a bit of personality in the dinosaurs from the lost world the silent version mm-hmm. like the one brontosaurus who just stops to randomly do an elvis snarl <laughs> or um <laughs> or like gorgo and ogra his mother mm-hmm. the emir Ray Harryhausen monsters, they generally tended to have a bit more personality, as opposed to either the non-Harryhausen stop motion ones or the ones that are just big animals on a set made to look large. Yeah. How about you, Snazzy? You got an opinion on monsters with personalities? Well, speaking as one myself, I do think that there is a very clear distinction between the Japanese ones and the Western ones, if you will. But yeah, they especially got really, really distinct as the Showa movies went on, certainly. Like, after a while, you had characters like Gaigon who just fights dirty, or uh, Megalon, who's just kind of stupid. Things like that.
0: Oh, it'd be nice to Megalon. People still come to see Megalon here on the island, okay? I mean, they pick on him because he's Megalon, but...
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I think I'm going to take a little visit to see Megalon after the show.
0: Uh, Yeah, you can go hang out with Jet to do it. You know, he'll give you a little tour.
2: (laughs) This button says
1: Megalon. What does it do?
0: Oh, really? The rim shot? Well, I guess some people think Megalon is a joke, so... (laughs) Uh, Jimmy, you're Actually, getting a little weird with your button labels. Oh, it keeps things interesting? Okay, I get it. I get it. You got a system. I'm not going to question your system. I understand.
1: I guess we can't be too hard on Megalon. He did make the cut for that board game recently. Yes, so. that is
0: true. <laughs> so, one of the things that I grew to appreciate, and this is one of those hills I'll die on. I know a lot of people in the fandom bemoan what they think is the loss of what they would term traditional tokusatsu. But really, the th- problem is that I think they're conflating practical special effects with tokusatsu because that's what we typically associate with it. They don't realize that tokusatsu, when you translate it from Japanese, just means special filmmaking. It's meant to denote things that are special effects. Not special effects driven, but involve a lot of special effects. Hmm. So things like animation, CGI, some of these more like what we might term more modern techniques still fall under that model. I bring that up to say that one of the things that's distinctive about the Monsterverse is they use mocap for the monsters. And I think mocap is just a modern day take on suitmation because it's essentially the same thing. You have to use the same techniques to do it. They're not wearing big rubber suits, but they have mocap actors like TJ Storm playing Godzilla in the MonsterVerse films, and he's doing genuine acting. You look at video, if you really want to amuse yourself, look at video of the three guys who are Ghidorah's heads in this movie, Hmm. and they are not just mocapping their movies, they're mocapping their faces. So they're doing real acting. And honestly, I think if somebody like Aharuro Nakajima was still around and in his prime and was still doing this sort of stuff, he'd be doing mocap. If Eiji Tsuburaya was around, I think he would love mocap and he would want to find ways to use it. So when I hear people complain about, again, don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but you know when people complain about the fact that Godzilla and Shin Godzilla is CGI and he's not a suit... Well, they did technically use mocap, and I've seen video of the guy they had do the mocap for that movie, and he had very interesting ideas behind his performance and his portrayal of the character. Now, I know there's other things you can talk about in terms of the execution of it, but again, that's a rabbit trail for another day. But Hmm. And then you watch video of the actors when they were doing the fight scenes. They're actually interacting with one another and reacting to one another, choreographing it together. And then that's all saved into the computer and then gets modified later by the special effects artists. All of that to say, I really appreciate that because I do think it's part of the same tradition. Now, if this was just straight CGI, a la, say, ILM with, say, the Jurassic Park movies. Where it's just whole cloth animated. I, uh, there's a uh, keyframing. That's what it is keyframing. If it was just that, I could understand a bit more why people would be upset about it. But given that it is mocap, I still think it's in, like I said, the same tradition.
2: To be honest, I feel like if Haru Nakajima were still alive and acting as Godzilla, he would love mocap because acting in those rubber suits was a nightmare. <laughs> yes. And- and dangerous like he's had numerous bouts with death playing godzilla and so the idea that you can just kind of be free to perform without being weighed down by that suit he'd probably love that
0: oh Mm -hmm. i'm sure he would but i will admit as all of us in one point or another have acknowledged this isn't a perfect movie i do think the movie shortcomings do get blown out of proportion a little bit and the one i'll bring up To start the discussion is I don't think all the humor lands as well as they want to think it does. I've heard another podcast that criticized the film because they expected it to be funnier when it's being directed by Michael Dogerty, who did films like Krampus and Trick or Treat that have a dark, edgy sort of sense of humor to them. And you don't quite get that here. So I can understand that. And yeah, not all the jokes work. I mean, do we really want to talk about the Ghidorah gonorrhea thing? That was one of the stupidest things in this movie. That was incredibly unfortunate. Then there are other ones, as we joked about a little bit earlier, with the, my God, Zilla. I mean, it's obvious, but it's funny. I mean... I may as well throw in the rim shot for it because it's that
2: kind of a joke, and honestly, I will admit, honestly, I've made that joke in real life before. So. I think we all have. We all have. Man, it's obvious.
0: <laughs> I mean, my introduction to Godzilla films was visiting my grandmother and catching this marathon that was going on on WGN. It was called "Oh My Godzilla Weekend." It's an old joke. You may as well just use it once. Why not? It hasn't stopped the makers of Doctor Who from punting off of that title forever.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Sort of like that one Power Rangers movie doing the whole can't control the robot right off the bat with five pilots thing. It's obvious everyone else has made it. But if you don't do it, you're missing an opportunity. But if you do do it, you... Just following everyone else. So damned if you do, damned if you don't, I guess. Yeah, basically.
0: So for me, the humor is inconsistent. So that's one of the things I will fault the movie for, and I will agree with that criticism. Do I think it it's insulting to the movie? Not necessarily. It's more head-scratching than anything else. Another one is, and most of it's coming from, um, I can't remember the... That character's name, I've run into him occasionally Sam. here on the island. but uh, Sam, right? Sam, yes. Yeah, Sam, the the guy who does the the presentation to the government officials at the beginning. And he says, like, oh, I, I have to go now. Here's a fun little video about Titan reproduction. And this one has the genitals blurred out. And it's like, why are you blurring out the Muto's faces?
1: What? Yeah, it's just a clip from- <laughs> There are things about their biology we don't want to know.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you have to start asking questions like, wait a minute. What did we see in the previous movie? Do we want to Okay, moving on? I don't know. Maybe that was purely done as a joke. Maybe the whole video was a joke. It was just trolling, basically. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of those things. <laughs> the first cut of this movie was three hours long, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, there's some pacing issues with this movie. And you know what? Hashtag release the Dogerty cut. Let's start a new movement, guys. We got the Snyder cut. Let's get that Dogerty cut now. So and it'll be a heck of a lot easier and cheaper to produce. So yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's one of the things that would have got fleshed out in that.
1: But what about you guys? I'm totally with you there on the humor. And I think part of that is because with the idea of movies having a more international audience, you want jokes that are a bit easier to translate into other languages. Which, you know, I mean, on the one hand, the movie's for everyone, but on the other hand, you're left with some really weak jokes. <laughs> But one thing I think a lot of people would even agree on this would be not quite enough Mothra. Like I've said <laughs> in the past, Mothra makes a huge impression whenever she's on screen, as all the monsters do. Would have been nice if we got just a little bit more of her. Because despite the controversy of when the initial design was revealed and people were going, that's way too slender, it's practically unrecognizable, in execution, Mothra looked amazing. So it would have been nice to see a bit more of that. It's actually weird. I think I remember someone saying at one point that Mothra technically has more screen time than Rodan, yet it feels like Rodan is in the movie more than Mothra. I think
0: think that's because Rodan has such a great standout scene, because let's be honest, Rodan hasn't looked that good since 1956, (laughs) Yeah, and it was amazing. So I think because of that, he stands out more in people's minds where mothra didn't have quite other than that probably that first scene with the larva she didn't have as dramatic a scene in most of the movie
1: mm.
2: yeah you thought mothra never really got a standout scene like rodan did and so because of that she felt kind of cast aside compared to the other <sighs> monsters which is a shame because there are elements of her design You don't really get to see them. Like the fact that the dots on the edges of her wings look like Godzilla's eyes Mm -hmm. to kind of visually show that they have this kind of relationship symbiotic. Yeah. And you never get to really see that clearly in the movie. So it's something that only like if you're really paying attention, you're going to notice. Well, she does get a standout scene. It's just her final scene. Yes, (laughs)
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> which people That's have right. lost their mind a little bit with, because if you listen to Dogerty's commentary, he flat out says, oh, yeah, Mothra does this all the time for Godzilla. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Maybe he's referring to
1: in-universe.
0: Possibly. Uh, I do think there are some people who've been unnecessarily harsh on Dogerty <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when it comes to some of the things he's said in the commentary and elsewhere about this movie, but I, I don't fault him.
2: <laughs> people being unnecessarily mean on the internet? Who would have thought? Stop the presses. <laughs> exactly jimmy we've had our fair
0: share of dealing with that as well (laughs) which is why we work really hard to be a positive force in the fandom on the internet (laughs) as i feel like you guys do as well just throwing that out there but yeah and Mm -hmm. i've also heard some people complain about the design and they don't like that she had the little mantis manibles but they did that so she could actually interact with things as opposed to just flapping wings and one of the weirdest ones is I actually had a conversation with a young woman at G-Fest who was complaining that they gave Mothra a stinger and we keep it family friendly here on the show but I'm gonna dive into this a little bit so uh kids if you're listening you might want to ask mom and dad a few questions I see you there snazzy (laughs) but she made the argument that by giving her stinger they made Mothra phallic especially with impaling Rodan with it and my counter to that was it's actual insect biology wasps have stingers also mothra had a stinger in gmk Mm -hmm. so (laughs) this is not weird and i don't think it robs mothra of that feminine nature that she has by doing that because it's still adhering to some form of
1: insect biology it was a stinger that shot a bunch of smaller stingers
0: True, Snazzy. See, you're uh, correcting me better than Jimmy is right now. Maybe I should have you replace Jimmy. Oh, I'm just kidding, man. Calm down.
1: Hey, I died fewer times than you, pal.
0: Oh, uh, you like that headlock there, Snazzy? Uh, <laughs> 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 Let him go, Jimmy. Let him go. Okay, this isn't WrestleMania, all right? <laughs>
1: Maybe that'll teach him.
0: Yes, perhaps. <laughs> so honestly, I'm not bothered. But I think her argument was that Mothra didn't have those things like she used sparkly glitter to defeat her enemies and things like that. That In her mind it was more distinctly feminine and it didn't bother me. It was still Mothra to me, to be honest. Mm. So now that we've had a little bit of getting our reviewer hat on there, you know, and I know there's some other things we could talk about, like the fact that Dr. Graham gets killed off a little unceremoniously about 45 minutes in, not on like the elder Brody in the first movie, which by the way, I noticed when we were watching the movie today that weirdly enough, this film was not afraid to kill off its cast members. That happened a lot. <laughs> I counted Hmm. three, because you had her, and then you had Dr. Sarazawa. which, honestly, that scene gets to me every time I see it, but we'll talk about it a little bit here, I think.
1: Not as high a body count as Skull Island, though.
0: No, but Skull (laughs) Island was basically a horror movie, so... (laughs)
1: Hmm.
0: But there are a couple of topics that I wanted to bring up because it's a lot of things that get brought up in the fandom when discussing this movie. And it's also a couple of the big reasons that I wanted to have you guys on here because I thought you made excellent presentations in your videos talking about this. Both of you have made your fair share of videos on this movie. But the first one I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to let Ryan spearhead this part of the discussion, and that is the nuclear narrative. Basically, the criticism is this film, because it's an American film, has a very different attitude toward nuclear energy compared to the Japanese films. And they make the argument that it, I I don't want to go so far as to say that it insults the rest of the franchise, but they don't think it's in line with the attitude of the rest of the franchise. And as you put it in your video, it's more complicated than that.
1: Oh, yeah. Way more complicated because I think one thing that's interesting about each new Godzilla movie that has come out recently is it's always gotten me to go back to the original 1954 film and look at that one in a new light. The way it happened with this was... I wound up going back to the 1954 film, and I realized that it basically did the same thing, just not with nuclear bombs. It did the sci-fi thing and went with something allegorical. You basically have the idea that in the original film, Sarazala has this new ultimate weapon, something that at its mildest is as bad as a nuclear bomb, and at worst could completely change the course of the arms race that was happening. He didn't even mean to invent it. He's ashamed that he's invented it. He doesn't want to be associated with it. And yet, it's possibly the only thing that could defeat Godzilla and potentially save the world. So you have this same idea where you've got that ultimate weapon it causes great devastation not just to its target but to everything around it it would be horrible for the environment it would potentially kill a lot of people in addition to the wildlife But using it still could be the best possible choice. Of all the bad choices, that would be the best choice. And the other choice, of course, is to do nothing and just either wait for someone else to develop a horrible weapon or just let Godzilla go unchecked. And it's kind of similar to that idea of we've got to end this war that we're fighting across the Pacific. And what was the argument? It'll shave the war short by how many years and save millions of lives. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the same thing. Gojira, the original, asked the question of if Japan had to make the same choice of using a horrifying weapon to save lives, even if it came at a great cost, would we ultimately make that same choice? And in the movie, at least, the answer was yes. It would come at a great price, but the answer was ultimately yes. And in many ways, what you see in King of the Monsters is sort of an inversion of that. Yes. Even visually, Sarazawa ascending instead of descending and Mm -hmm. things, saving Godzilla instead of killing him. And of course, using a nuke to undo the oxygen destroyer, as opposed to using the oxygen destroyer to undo something caused by a nuke. But Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's a complete reversal, but in a way that really works and works in context of the film as well. It's not just like they went, hey, let's flip this just to do it. It makes sense within context. Yeah. But yeah, you've got the same idea, basically. It's not ideal to use a nuke, but they already screwed up. And if that's the choice they have to make, they weren't even originally going to do anything that would require a sacrifice. They were just going to launch a missile. But there were things, as always, that they weren't prepared for. And because time is of the essence, the difficult choice has to be made. You see throughout it that Sarazala he has that contradiction foremost in his mind because very first scene on the submarine, well, not the very first scene, but one of the first things we see is that he's staring at that watch, that pocket watch that was so important in 2014. Mm
0: -hmm. His father's watch.
1: Yeah, the watch that stopped right when the Hiroshima bomb was dropped Mm -hmm. or Hiroshima, however you choose to pronounce it. But he's staring at that. That is our clue that, he knows exactly what he's doing goes against everything he believes. And then he gives that speech about making peace with the demons who created your wounds Mm -hmm. and everything else he says in there about redemption and whatnot. It all ties into this idea that this is a very difficult choice. It doesn't really make sense with what any of them believe, with what he believes especially, but it's a choice that ultimately must be made for the greater good, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Because
0: basically the thesis of your video when you were talking about this was that, like I said, it's more complicated and people don't realize that the franchise's relationship with nuclear energy, much like the Japanese's relationship with nuclear energy, has always been very complicated because Godzilla started as a nuclear allegory, but then became Japan's hero. But he's an atomic powered hero. Yeah. So, and as you pointed out, it's his atomic ray that ultimately defeats Hedera you know, mm-hmm. because he uses it to enhance the technology that the humans had to kill him. So, yeah,
1: nuclear energy right yeah. there.
0: And they try to use a freaking nuclear submarine, which is technically illegal by Japanese law in <laughs> Godzilla versus King Ghidorah to revive. So this is not the first time that this has
1: happened. Mm-hmm. And of course, something else that's worth pointing out is that even when they make that choice in King of the Monsters, it doesn't exactly go according to plan. It winds up that they wind up overpowering Godzilla to the point where he's about to go and explode. So they would have just been killing him twice if things hadn't gone in such a way that allowed nature to correct itself with Mothra having to sacrifice herself and everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was the line as, Sarazawa's got that lizard juiced. (laughs) An example of when the jokes land, so... (laughs) Yeah, And the fact that, as you pointed out, we get this on the heels of the oxygen destroyer, which, okay, I will admit is one of my gripes with the movie because it's just a name drop. It's the first time we've had an oxygen destroyer really since the original movie. It's not given nearly the weight that it deserved. You could have called that thing super nuke and it would have accomplished the exact same thing. But it fails. It's essentially a WMD. And by the way, I feel no shame in the fact that when I saw this at G-Fest and they have the shot after the thing goes off and it's all the dead fish coming up. And I said, that's a lot of fish. And people either laughed or groaned at me. Shame on you. (laughs) Yes, I know, Jimmy. Shame, shame. Anyway, they tried using a WMD. And it didn't work. And you know, like you said, you have they had to make this very difficult decision to try this. And that scene with Sarazawa gets to me every time I see it. To be honest, I think the part that really just broke me was when he says goodbye old friend in Japanese to him. That just mm-hmm. wrecked me. And I think that was actually Ken Watanabe's idea on set. It was yeah. scripted in English, but he said, no, I'm going to say it in Japanese. Mm -hmm. it's one of those subtle little things connecting back to Godzilla's very Japanese origins and it's just Oh, it just works so much. I could probably spend the whole podcast just talking about that. (laughs) So I think your point is valid. And I think more people need to consider that it's not as simple as they want to paint it out to be. And I know people like Honda and a lot of people who worked on those old movies in particular were not the biggest fans of nuclear energy. But they played around with things in those old movies they're wrestling with it. Just like Japan as a culture was wrestling with a lot of things, whether it was nuclear energy or something else, you know, the original King Kong versus Godzilla is a satire of commercialism. You Mm -hmm. know, Japan was becoming an immensely powerful economic force in the world, but they're saying like, well, there's some downsides to this and we're going to poke some fun at that. I know you're not a fan of it, but Godzilla versus King Ghidorah plays around with a lot of similar ideas. That script is a mess, but it plays around with a lot of those ideas. So, this is not new to the franchise. Yeah. And I think the fact that they present it as complicated makes it possible for us to have conversations like this. Hmm. Time to get a new watch. Yes.
1: <laughs> the <movie> says.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then the next thing that's the, and I have a fair amount of notes on this myself because I read uh, several articles on it because there's actually been a lot of people who uh, were talking about this. But I was glad someone else pointed this out as you did brandon which is the spirituality of this movie which also goes over people's heads
2: right i think the genesis for uh how i kind of started uh analyzing the movie in this way is the line that michael doherty the director said when the kind of thesis for the movie is he wanted to put the god back in godzilla mm-hmm. and if you look at the movie with that in mind so many narrative and aesthetic and design choices that go into the movie is to present kind of this it's basically a movie about mankind's relationship with god only in this movie god happens to be a giant 350 foot tall radioactive dinosaur absolutely bonkers and amazing yes And then you have Ghidorah, who is basically like this three-headed serpent that emerges from Antarctica, which is a very, the closest thing you can get to, like, hell on Earth. An underworld. Yes. It's completely inhospitable to humans. And plus, I think in Dante's Inferno, people have pointed this out to me. Maybe, Ryan, you can point, because I don't know that much about
0: Dante's Inferno. uh, I think it's It's the the lowest circle. I wouldn't say 13th, but the the lowest circle in hell is...
1: uh, It's the inner innermost circle where satan himself resides chewing on traitors basically mm-hmm. yeah so i think three-headed cool. possibly oh i'd have to look that up i know it's more than one mouth devouring traitors over yeah. and over again well but- and
0: the promotional materials leading up to this movie and the even a lot of the imagery and terminology used for Ghidorah, is very uh, devil-like Like Mm -hmm. there was a bit from the viral marketing that somebody was supposed to be someone when they discovered Ghidorah said the devil has three heads.
1: That was Graham. Yes. Yeah.
0: The devil has three heads. There's definitely, I feel like some allusions to the beast of revelation. Now that one had seven heads. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ghidorah needs four more there,
1: but yeah. And I don't mean to keep stepping on you, but there's also a Lovecraft connection at the mountains of madness was set in Antarctica and there's whatever lurks in the mountains that even the elder things were afraid of.
2: Mm-hmm. right yeah i thought about that too so and of course lovecraft deals with these otherworldly beings that are so beyond our comprehension that they might as well be gods so there's even a lovecraftian element to this movie that mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate. i would
0: argue that there's always been a bit of a lovecraftian element to Ghidorah, even going back to 1964
2: though mm-hmm. oh, yeah, there's the an outer element space godora is very lovecraftian in concept mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons i prefer that over the heisei Mutating. Uh you know?
0: yeah, the bio weapon from the future. Yeah. yeah,
2: like it's made I from know. Pokemon. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be nice to the Dorats. They're around here, so <laughs> we just make sure not to feed them radiation after midnight because we know what happens. So gotta catch them all. Yep. <laughs> but I was also thinking they bring this up in the movie. Ghidorah is from space, and I think it also plays into that devil aspect—the fall from heaven, the devil being cast out to Earth and lucifer means morning star so he's falling from the
2: sky right see i didn't even know that or so even like, yeah <laughs> yeah. so that even um, boisters i guess my point even more yeah so all this is very intentional by michael doherty and if you're not looking for it it's easy not to pick up on it because at the end of the day it's still a summer blockbuster
0: yeah you were pointing out that mothra is very angelic
2: Right, Um, authors like the angel on God's side, and God is Godzilla. And then you have Rodan, who's very demon-like. He emerges from a volcano. He's covered in lava. He's got burning embers on his wings. He literally flies over the surface and just destroys everything in his path. So he's almost like kind of like making way for Satan or Lucifer's new world that he's going mm -hmm. to build once he casts aside his Mm -hmm. rival, which is Godzilla.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this a little bit in your video, but I've heard some other people talk about this a little bit. Rodan is. Since he's a wild card, he basically just declares his allegiance to whoever he thinks is the biggest guy in the room, essentially. He's kind of like the scream of the movie, you know? <laughs> he's a, kind of a Judas figure to a certain extent because he is an Earth monster who betrays Earth to this alien force because that's what Ghidorah is. And that's one of the things I really like about this, and you brought this up in your video as well. One of the things I really like about the MonsterVerse is that it intentionally blurs the line between mythology and science. Because you have scientists trying to explain these titans, but they defy science. And they're definitely presented as the sources of these myths. And that's why there's a lot of spiritual imagery associated with them. The the Titans being the original gods that ruled the universe in Greek mythology, which is why I think it's a brilliant name for them. And essentially humanity, they're like the gods of Greek mythology. They think, oh, we run the show now, but don't realize that the Titans were first. And we need to keep ourselves in line to avoid angering the Titans. <laughs> sure.
2: Mm -hmm. And part of the narrative of the movie about humanity's relationship with Godzilla is that, again, going back to the Oxygen Destroyer, just as when Godzilla is about to take care of Ghidorah, he's got him pinned, he's got him on his turf in the ocean. Ghidorah stands no chance. He's already ripped off one of his heads. Like, he's pretty much done. But then what does humanity go and do? We get in the way, we think we have control of things, and what happens? We make things infinitely worse. We take out our only protector, clearing the way for Ghidorah to basically have his way for the planet which then the rest of the movie is all about kind of reconnecting with God. And this goes back to one of these subtle things about the human characters. A lot of people talk about how they're not that great. But if you look at them in relation to this overall theme, there's actually a lot of cool, subtle stuff going on. Like Mark is a character who he does not have any faith in Godzilla because Godzilla kind of accidentally in the process of killing the Mutos in the previous movie killed his son. And so he blames Godzilla for it. But just as when things are at their darkest and he's kind of losing all hope, he's going to leave Monarch to go find Madison. Mothra shows up and she literally shows him the light. She like mm-hmm. casts the clouds aside. She arrives in this blinding flash of light. It's a beautiful, angelic moment. And that kind of what spurns Mark to think of the idea of nuking Godzilla to empower him and bring him back to life.
0: I was trying to find the article where I read this, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't find it to review for this. I'll see if I can track it down for the, for the show notes for this episode. But someone actually talked about how Mark is going through this crisis of faith. He's essentially, in terms of how he feels about Godzilla, kind of an atheist. He's angry. He has no faith in Godzilla. He thinks Godzilla is basically his enemy and the enemy of all humanity. And then through the process, he learns to trust Godzilla and to relinquish control, basically, and let him do what needs to be done.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if I would so much call him an atheist, because atheist implies that he wouldn't even believe Godzilla exists. True. I think the technical term, as I've been looking it up to do other videos, like on the remake of Clash of the Titans, the actual term would be al-artist. Would, ah. Which is, you believe that there's some sort of higher power, but you don't think it's running things very well, so you don't think it's worthy of worship, and you should cut all ties with it.
0: Mm. Yes, that makes sense. And so you have that going on. And for Mark, it's a very spiritual journey. It's kind of a microcosm of what you see happening broadly, as you point out in your video, with this larger relationship. And it's kind of the big thesis of this movie is learning to coexist with this and learning to trust these things that are bigger than us. Because they're the ones who are, in the end, are the ones who are really going to fix everything.
2: Mm -hmm. And it tackles these spiritual themes, but in a very naturalistic way, it's spiritual in these ideas, not necessarily literally. Yes. It's about our relationship with nature. And that's kind of what if Godzilla is the symbol of nature, then our relationship with Godzilla is represents our relationship with the overall planet. And so the idea of the movie is that we need to put more trust in Mother Earth, in the planet, in nature to take care of things instead of always trying to think that we have answered everything Mm -hmm.
0: because you can't control it. You can't make it do what you want it to do all the time.
2: Exactly. And that's what Emma tries to do. She is kind of like the opposite of Mark. You know, if Mark is the one who is like, screw the gods, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Emma's like, we need to put our absolute faith in them to the point where we need to release them and billions of people are going to die. So be it. It, Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I believe that they will fix the planet. And the movie... It's not totally not on her side, but she is the antagonist of the movie. But I think you're supposed to get where she's coming from. It's not like a clear cut, good or bad question to the movie. She was tempted by the serpent in Alan Jonah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I would definitely say that because they even think that they can use Monster Zero. Ghidorah Mm -hmm. to do what they need to do they were tempted by the serpent quite literally because we have the serpent here the three-headed serpent and I can even point to some of this with just the terminologies that are used again that blurring of the line between science and mythology when they start to theorize Ghidorah is not part of the natural order he must be extraterrestrial and then Stanton says oh he's an invasive species but what does Sarazawa say he's a false king So there's that, and I'm sure this was not intentional, and I'm probably reading into this, but you could take some of the things like the angel, you could take that even further and talk about how that scene with Mothra marking where Godzilla is underwater, it's not unlike the angels going to Christ's tomb and after the resurrection, and what's basically what happened. Godzilla is entombed. He's dead, so to speak. And not only that, killed by the people that he's supposedly trying to save. And then he has to be resurrected.
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't necessarily want to start calling Godzilla Messiah of the monsters, but you could go there. But then again, what do the angels actually say at the tomb? He is not dead. Yes. (laughs) And that's what they find. (laughs) Yeah,
0: And then we have that wonderful scene where he emerges from the water. And just by giving Mark this look, it's like this, it is this kind of look of understanding. So it's almost like he's saying thank you, but he's also reminding them, remember your place.
2: Yeah, because one of the characteristics of Godzilla, especially in these movies, is he's very apathetic towards humans. He doesn't really care that are around him. He doesn't go out of his way to hurt them, but he doesn't pay the attention to them, really. They're really, The only time we ever see him even glance at humanity is in 2014 when he sees Ford Brody. He kind of gives him a little look and that, that's it. And so this is the only the second time where he's acknowledged humanity's presence. And it's a very unemotional, like, I see you. Then he goes away Mm -hmm. and that's it. And then Mark, finally, he said, I think this is like second or third time looking at Godzilla in the film. Mm -hmm. And the first time he finally gets it, like he understands, I need to have faith in Godzilla.
0: Yeah, so like I said, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn. I mean, you could even get super biblical with the ending, which I know some people complained about the ending, but I'm not bothered by it because I've heard some people theorize that in animal hierarchies, they will defer to each other. That way, averting their eyes and all of that. But you could throw in more Christological parallels. There is a passage that says, every knee will bow (laughs) eventually to Jesus Christ. Yeah, Like I said, it's a little dangerous to do that because th- these analogies break down very quickly.
1: <laughs> I can think of another one. There's the verse about how the trees and the rocks and the skies will shout his name. And in the soundtrack, you have the chanting of the names of each monster. Mm-hmm. And
0: there's even a line when they see the underwater civilization, which may or may not be c we don't know, <laughs> <laughs> where they say, wow, I, if these stones and the walls could talk. The stories they could mm-hmm. tell and for what I understand it makes sense Michael Dougherty the co-writer and the director on this I know he had a Catholic upbringing and he told stories about how when he was in Catholic school he would get distracted in class and he would doodle monsters and it would drive the nuns crazy <laughs> so you know, I'm not surprised that these are sinking in and honestly I think what kind of perfectly encapsulates this is that it's easily my favorite shot in the whole movie which is the red sky in the background Ghidorah silhouetted against it and then the cross in the foreground and dogerty even tweeted that out saying you know where is your godzilla now it was meant to be a kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke but i think it's also very indicative of this movie because hmm. that's essentially what's going on godzilla can stop all of this but where is your godzilla now
1: yeah the cross was originally a form of execution
0: Yeah. So I could write an entire essay just on that shot (laughs) and talk about it in the context of this movie. There's Oh, like I said, there's so much we could go into and I can't say it enough. Listeners go watch both of the videos. I'm going to have links to them in the show notes, but go and watch both of the videos that we've been discussing from these gentlemen. And you'll learn even more than what we can talk about here because they're incredibly insightful. And I think you'll see the movie in a whole other light by watching them. I'll try to get through it relatively quickly because we do have a little bit of a time crunch to uh, stick to. But I know some other people have complained about the eco-terrorists that we see in here. They've complained about Emma Russell's plan. They say that her plan makes no sense. And I'm like, eh, actually, I think if you pay enough attention, you'll see that there is a logical progression to this. My first argument would be people will do crazy things because of their grief. And given that she is a scientist and her son died because of giant thing that came down and tried to fix stuff, she's going to find a way to make sure that that can't happen again. So she's basically acting out in her grief on a large scale because she has to deal with large scale things. So that would be my defense for that. But as nutty as it may seem, there are people much like Alan Jonah and Emma Russell in the world. So it is really not all that heard of. It's just that it doesn't get talked about as much because in the grand scheme, compared to other things in the world, (laughs) they're kind of small fry. But people like her and ideas like that do actually exist. But like good science fiction, good storytelling, really, they latch onto these ideas and make them bigger or take them to their logical conclusions or explore them and stuff like that. But no, eco-terrorism is a thing. I actually read an article that had a quotation from a guy named Vincent M. I'm probably saying this wrong. Ken Canastraro? He's a retired CIA operative who works, this article was from the 90s, but with the National Strategic Information Center, which is a think tank that specializes in intelligence. And he was their consultant on terrorism. And he actually said it may seem ultimately self defeating, but there are small organized clandestine cells working on the development of technologies to diminish or even eliminate the race of man from the earth. <laughs> Yeah, he was looking into a lot of eco-terrorists, of radical environmentalists, and even they'll tell you that, yeah, the people in the radical environmentalist movement that want to do that are probably fringe, or nobody really buys into that, but there are also some of them that will admit, you know what, we kind of like the idea. (laughs) We're not opposed to that. (laughs) There was even a guy who was part of one of those groups, there's multiple ones out there, but one of the more prominent ones is a group called Earth First. You guys ever heard of Earth First? I think I might have. Yeah, and it's Earth First with an exclamation point, I might add.
2: (laughs) Just so you know where they stand.
0: Yes, definitely. There was a Hmm. guy named Robert F. Mueller, who was a geologist, and he's a member of Earth First, and he actually said the human race is a failed species that isn't going to be around for very long, and actually said that he would be all for reducing the population of the United States to 10 million hunter-gatherers. And Earth First and other organizations like it, because I'll mention a few of them, they do what's called monkey wrenching, which is they go around and they basically sabotage different operations, like logging and all that. And one example that this article I looked at gave was that they would do things like drive spikes into tree trunks. So it messes with the saw blades when they're trying to cut them down.
1: So they damage the trees to save them?
0: Yes, figure that out. You got to stick it to the corporations harvesting them, I guess. So.
1: By sticking it to a tree, literally.
0: Yes. <laughs> Groups like Earth First are based on something that I found that was called Deep Ecology. And I will admit, I am no expert on this. I should talk to some of the scientists around here about it. But part of Deep Ecology is they believe in something called species equality, which is all forms of life, human beings, mosquitoes, dandelions, and malaria, or malaria protozoa, have the same intrinsic value. That is a direct quote from one of my sources.
2: Good luck finding a lot of people that agrees with that stance.
1: Yeah, basically. How does that factor into the whole predator-prey dichotomy? If predators and preys are both equal in value, then shouldn't predators be prevented from eating creatures equal to them?
0: This is why I have you guys on to talk about (laughs) how the logic kind of breaks down. And Deep Ecology also says there are too many humans on the planet. Well, doesn't that sound a little familiar? Like our friend Alan Jonah in this movie. Which is something I wish hmm. they actually would have kind of explained. They just say he's an eco-terrorist and he's a radical, but they don't really explain a whole lot about him beyond that. Again, re- hashtag release the Joe Gritty cut.
2: The only thing we really get is his little speech to Emma when because he, he's like an ex-independent military mm-hmm. guy. And he says he's fought dirty wars, so he's seen basically like the ugly side of mankind. And it doesn't like change. Really literally- yeah. Yeah, he knows human nature. He's got to figure it out, he thinks.
1: That kind of ties into the religious thing again, because he's lost faith, but he's lost faith in humans. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't necessarily say that he has faith in the Titans, but he certainly sees them as worthwhile in terms of
2: getting rid of the things that are worthless in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he sees them, the monsters more, or the Titans more as tools to achieve his end. He doesn't really yeah. care either way. It's just a way to get it done. Yeah.
0: They're just very large, very dangerous tools. <laughs> But here's the thing, though. There have been people, like I said, on the fringes who really buy in into the ideas like this. There was even a letter, an anonymous letter, sent into the Earth First Journal in 1984 that read, and I quote, The only way to stop all the destruction of our home is to decrease the birth rate or increase the death rate. It does no good to kill a few selected folks. It is a retail operation. What is Walmart doing this? I'm just saying (laughs) what we need is a wholesale operation. The simple expedient biological warfare. And that's how it says it has an exclamation point in this. Think about it. It fits. It's species specific. Bacteria are and viruses tend to be deadly to only one species. Only a few human pathogens are shared by other partners on our planet. Biological warfare will have no impact on other creatures, big or small, if we design it
1: carefully. And you know, with just a little bit of tweaking to the opening of that, this person would need to be visited by three ghosts at around Christmas time. Yes. Decrease the surplus population, that's basically... <laughs>
0: yeah, that's what it is.
1: And then, this is
0: just funny, and then this article also said in May 1987, the same journal got a letter from somebody who went by the name Miss Anne Thropey, first name Anne, last name Thropey, which was actually an alias for a guy named Christopher Maines, <laughs> hmm. who said that as radical environmentalists, we see... And I apologize if this is a little bit of a trigger for some people. We see AIDS not as a problem, but a necessary solution. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And the Earth first co-founder, Dave Foreman, said in a book that is called Confessions of an Eco Warrior, quote, We humans have become a disease. Oh, does this sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> uh it, although this almost sounds hilarious because he came up with a name for this. And it sounds so ridiculous, you would think that it was satire, but it's not. He called this disease the human pox. I really
2: thought that went through. I really that
0: it. Yeah. And he considered himself to be a part of a, quote, new race of Neanderthals, humans who love the wild, whose primary loyalty is to the earth and not to Homo sapiens and who will act as, quote, antibodies to the human pox. And he added to that, quote, antibodies need no justification. Their job is merely to fight and destroy that which would destroy the greater body of which they are a part, for which they form a warrior society. Really, antibodies form warrior societies? Think about that, guys, that you have warrior societies living in you right now in your bloodstream.
1: Yeah, I think I saw that movie. It was called Osmosis Jones. <laughs> and now there's an anime kind of like that was it sells at work. <laughs> yeah, I will agree. The guy is a an it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So going back to Canestraro, 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 I'm going to get this name right at some point. Canestraro, he called the scientist bent on destroying mankind as, quote, potentially the most lethal of all terrorist movements, end quote. However, he did admit it was implausible saying, quote, it sounds exactly like the movie version. (laughs) We don't want to make too much of it. I think what we've identified is a potential source of terrorism rather than a current source. I can't give you any judgment about how serious and how extensive it is. I suspect it's very small and very confidential, but there are a few people thinking like this and seeking the wherewithal to pursue their vision, end quote. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's Earth First, but there are other groups out there with similar agendas or similar lines of thinking. There's an offshoot of Earth First, and I also, for what I read, they said this was also an offshoot of the Animal Liberation Front. Yes, ALF. (laughs) Got an opinion on ALF, Snazzy?
1: (laughs) I just think his nose looks weird.
0: Yes. (laughs) And the name of this organization that I'm about to get to is the Earth Liberation Front, or yes, ELF. (laughs) In fact, they even call members of it the Elves. Michael Crichton has actually written, I think, a book or two about Elf. And he's not too fond of them, for what I understand. They claim to use, quote, economic sabotage and guerrilla warfare to stop the exploitation and destruction of the environment, end quote. Again, does this sound familiar? <laughs> and they do many of the same things that Earth First does. They started in the UK in 1992, and now they're in 17 countries, and they were classified as a domestic terrorist group by the FBI in 2001. (laughs) Now, no one's died in their attacks, so the FBI Deputy Assistant Director for Counterterrorism said, I think we're lucky. Once you set one of these fires, they can go way out of control, end quote. So those are actual terrorist organizations, but there's also, and I didn't look into this quite as much, so I'll just give you the long and short of it. Have you guys ever heard of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement or vehement? That's actually how they want the name pronounced. Uh,
1: no, but I mean, I can sort of derive a lot of what they're about yes, <laughs> from the name. Yes. Uh, and
0: how they feel about it. Yes. They're based in Portland. Their slogan is Live Long and Die Out. <laughs> and they're purposes to get people not to have children in fact i read on their official website that their founder at age 25 got himself a vasectomy because he truly believed that
1: well that's somewhat of a relief
0: (laughs) so i bring all of that up to say emma russell and alan jonah are not as crazy or far fetched as you might think
2: yeah and in the movie they're totally believable and their arguments make sense within the universe that's been established yes i think they're a perfectly valid antagonistic force
0: yes and i think it goes back again to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about they're extremists and this movie is not about extremism it's about nuance it's about acknowledging that things are complicated And it's not about controlling things. It's about living in harmony with these things, which, to be honest, I think we could use a little bit more of that these days.
1: It's about balance. You don't go so far in one direction or the other that you wind up just causing things to go wrong. you got to meet somewhere in the middle. You've got to work with the thing that
2: might even seem opposed to you. Mm hmm. Yeah, Mark and Emma represent two extremes. And once they come together in the form of saving their daughter, the balance is achieved from like a character Hmm. perspective.
0: Yeah. And that's why I'm going to be curious to see how all of the things that we saw, not only in this movie, but in the other MonsterVerse movies are going to play out once we finally get to Godzilla versus Kong, especially with the materials that we're seeing coming out, promoting it. It seems like it's going in a really interesting and I think a little bit unexpected direction for a lot
1: of people. So I'm eager to see what happens. Hmm. That's going to be something. I think Adam Wingard has said that we're not seeing everything, see. including something really big, but that would be a spoiler. Yes.
0: <laughs> and the Monster Island Board of Directors is a very strict no-spoiler policy when it comes to new movies. So at the risk of me getting shot into space, I must stop you right there. <laughs> <laughs> the monster is... <laughs> Calm down, Snazzy. Calm down. <laughs> Yes, Jimmy, you might want to get the duct tape out of the drawer. You'll never take me alive! <laughs> oh, crap. Now they're wrestling each other again. Just what we need. Jimmy better be careful. Snap does have an extra grasper on its tail. Oh, snap! <laughs> well, before it gets too much like a pay-per-view in there, uh, we might want to start wrapping things up here a little bit. And as part of that, I need to do a very important segment, the Patreon shout-outs.
1: Go show
0: Damon Noise Danny Damana Chris Cook Eli Harris Travis Alexander Michael Hamilton and finally Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Thank you, everyone, for your generosity. I really appreciate it. And I want to remind everybody that if you, too, want to join M I F V Max, check the link in the show notes where you can go to Patreon and sign up for as little as $3 a month to get perks just like this. All right. Thanks for indulging me there, fellas. I appreciate it. <laughs> Should have had you join in, Snazzy. It looks like something you would have had fun with.
1: Oh yes, I have much experience being an ultra monster. <laughs> oh, I, I need to hear about this. This it, could be very amusing. Well, it's actually true. There's a charity I'm involved in with some other authors called Kaiju Versus Cancer. Yeah, yeah. We released an anthology of short stories, and the one we did is actually an Ultraman pastiche with him.
0: Oh, <laughs> that sounds amazing! Nice. oh my gosh if you guys uh, are really diving into the Ultraman I should have you come back on for some Ultraman stuff later
2: (laughs) maybe one day
0: yes maybe one day so as I said gentlemen this is leading us not only to our next episode but probably one of the biggest kaiju films to come out in a really really long time yeah Yep, we're finally getting there, gentlemen. Finally, Godzilla versus Kong. Oh my gosh, we are going to have so much content coming out of that. You know, this it's harvest season for kaiju po- content creators like us. I am really looking forward to it. In particular, I'll be going to the Denim Theater to... Cover the special premiere that's going on here, and I'll be joined by my friend Eric Anderson, the founder of Nerd Chapel, and actually a co-author of mine. We've put out a couple of books together. He's a big Godzilla fan. It's going to be his first time coming to the island of being on the show. Ah, it's it's gonna be great. (laughs) What do you guys you guys got anything coming up for uh, for Godzilla vs Kong content? What do you got going?
2: You can go first um yeah um i'm actually making a video called the importance of godzilla versus kong which will be going over the kind of history between the two characters and how king kong influenced godzilla um so you can be looking forward to that video very soon i'm definitely going to try to get it out before the movie comes out so
1: as for snazzy and i we're we've got plenty of other content coming along some of it godzilla versus kong related some of it more general uh we're also i don't know if any of you guys remember back in 2019 we organized one monstrous moment in anticipation for godzilla king of the monsters we're reviving that one monstrous moment alpha edition for godzilla versus kong deadline is for submission is going to be like a the weekend before the movie comes out. So uh, anyone who wants to make a video describing and waxing poetic about their favorite scene from a giant monster movie is welcome to. And heck, we're expanding it so it's not just monster movies. It can also be a show, a cartoon, a comic book, a video game, whatever scene you think really speaks to you.
0: Yeah, I'm going to see uh, if I can find the time. I'm going to see if I can contribute to that. I would love to. Hmm. All right, uh, really quickly, before I move on to the next episode, where do you guys stand? Team Godzilla, Team Kong?
1: Team Godzilla.
0: Of course, Snazzy.
1: (laughs) Same here. I was one of the first people to proclaim it.
2: (laughs) And I am Team Godzilla and always will be Team Godzilla.
0: Hot dang. (laughs) You know, to be honest, I would normally be Team Godzilla, but uh, maybe I'm buying into the advertising, but uh, I, I might be inching a little toward Team Kong because, you know, I like the underdog.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hey, i like kong too but you know godzilla's godzilla so this
0: is true mm. all right and then after that we'll be continuing much to my chagrin the year of gamera uh, this time i will be looking at gamera versus virus virus i've heard it pronounced a couple different ways from 1968 Hi. Yes, Jimmy, I know you're looking forward to it because it's about a very, shall we say, exciting chapter of your life. But anyway, I will be joined by Jack G-Man Hudgens and Jr. Villers from The Drift Space for that one. So it should prove to be very entertaining, to say the least. For the last time, Jimmy, don't go getting into a rematch for that bar fight you had with G-Man the last time he was here. (sighs) <sighs> I'm telling you, he's going to start scaring my guests away.
1: Yeah, Just call me. I think I can take him.
0: Yes. Uh, I mean, he also needs you to come in and fill in for him if he keeps this up. <sighs> Either that or I'll have Jet do it. Jet's filled in for him on uh, one occasion, so we'll see how that goes. But thank you. I'll Definitely keep your resume on file.
1: You're quite welcome. Oh, one more button just for the heck of it. <laughs>
0: Congratulations, you found my bumper music.
1: Whoa, I wasn't even trying.
0: (laughs) All right. So, to close this out, gentlemen, no episode of the Monster Island Film Vault would be complete without shameless self-promotion.
1: What you got? Well... I am an author, and I've got three books currently out that you can get on Amazon. There's Operation Red Dragon, The Dai Kaiju Wars Part 1, which is some kaiju-centric. So also got some heavy influence from anime and a bunch of other things. There's Occult Mafia, which is more of a horror story. Horror infused with a little mystery and a little western. Deals more with classic kind of monsters, vampires, werewolves, those sort of things and Emerald of Maddox City, which is an urban fantasy, styled as a series of short stories. And they are all set in the same universe, but you can read each one of them individually. So whichever one you decide to start with, that is just as good a starting point as the others. And hopefully there will be a fourth one coming soon, something that's More just a general short story anthology. But I'm working on sequels to all of the three books that are already out. Fourth short story anthology is on the way. And otherwise, look us up on YouTube. Snazzy runs the DeviantArt page
2: under his name. And yeah, that's what I got. And uh, you can find my YouTube channel if you just search Up From the Depths in the YouTube search bar. It should be the first result. I've got plenty of content covering mostly Godzilla, but all kinds of kaiju films. I review old-school kaiju films, uh, American and Japanese. I do uh, video essays, some top tens every once in a while. So uh, that's where you can find me. And then on Twitter, you can find me at from the depths 88
0: yeah, in fact, one of your most recent top ten lists was the top ten human characters in kaiju movies, or Godzilla films, I think, specifically is what that was. Yeah. And you had some interesting choices, I have to say. The head of Monster Island Security was very pleased to find out that he made the list. You are know, Captain Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Because uh, we all love Captain Gordon
0: around here. Unless you're William H. George III, the special envoy for the Monster Island Board of Directors. Those two don't get along. (laughs) That might be the other fight I have to referee around here. So, yeah. (laughs) And also, I'm just going to throw this out there. Since you talked about your books, Ryan, I also am an author. And I just had a new book published in December. The paperback is now out. It's called Zorzum and the God Who Devours. I co-authored it with my friends, Nick Hayden, who's been on the show a couple of times, and Aaron Brosman, who is a Twitch streamer. His name is Crop Circles In. It's a sword and sorcery story in the vein of Robert E. Howard. But, and I have the stones to say this, Zorzum is a barbarian cooler than Conan. Mic drop, not literally, because we run a podcast around here. so. <laughs> but uh, I'm very proud of that
1: quite the claim to make sir yes
0: in fact actually the as of this broadcast if you listen to the latest episode of the derailed trains of thought podcast which is co-hosted by nick hayden you'll get to hear me read the first chapter of that book and that was tremendous fun i have to say i'm starting to wonder if i missed my calling as an audiobook reader (laughs) so thanks a lot gentlemen If any of you out there would love to send us feedback about this or any other episode that we've covered, all of the social media and contact information will be in the credits. Speaking of which, Jimmy and Snazzy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from tylerdrawscomics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!